The text for today is Psalm 51. It's page 492 in your pew Bible. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. It is wonderful to be back. And I just wanted to, before we jump, thanks. Before we jump into the text today, I just wanted to say again, thank you for the way you welcomed uh, Missy and I and our kids a couple weeks ago when we led worship. And just now, um, we really have felt your love as we've transitioned to being back. And man, we've got a lot in store from us from God's word today. This is quite the psalm. You, you read in the beginning, Donna, that, that um, a psalm, this is a psalm of David. A, a psalm of David when Nathan confronted him when he had gone into Bathsheba. This is one of the most scandalous stories in all of Israel's history. David and Bathsheba. This is the, the story you read as a teen. And you find out the Bible's not G-rated like VeggieTales says it is. 
David was the king of Israel. He was a figure of pride for any Israelite. But here we see him at his worst. Here we encounter a lazy man, a man resting at home while his army is out at war fighting for him. He just so happened to be walking around on the roof of his house when he noticed a beautiful woman bathing, and he liked what he saw. He asked about her and found out that she was married to a man named Uriah, who was away at war, the one that David should have been fighting. He saw her, he wanted her, and he took her. But the pleasure of sin is fleeting, and his lust turned to panic when he received the news that this woman, that he had taken, the, the wife of his soldier, was pregnant with his child. Where did David turn in the midst of his own sin? A terrible situation. Immediately, he ordered Uriah back from war and told him to return to his house to be with his wife with the hope that he would sleep with her and think that the child was his. But Uriah refused to sleep anywhere but at the doorstep of David's house because his friends were still fighting. And you'd think that in the face of such selfless devotion, David's conscience would have been pricked, but no. He ordered that Uriah be placed back in the war at the thickest part of the battle against the most difficult enemies. Uriah died. David murdered Uriah. Now, a story like this that our heading describes can feel a little far from our current experience. It can feel like we flipped on Jerry Springer or something. My sinful heart can say, I'm not that bad. I would never do that. But a closer look at the type of sins that David committed shows us that we're not that different from David. He was lazy. Ever allowed someone else to do a job that you know you had the responsibility to do? He lustfully looked at another person. Ever viewed pornography or let your eyes linger where they shouldn't? He deceived his kingdom and orchestrated a bloody cover-up. Have you ever caught yourself explaining away sin or covering your tracks so that no one else finds out? No matter which of those sins I just described you can relate to, we can all relate with David's predicament. What do I do? Where do I go? David, in the midst of his sin, turned to his royal resources He played politics. He flaunted his power. He saved face. He played the game of, as long as no one knows about this, or as long as I don't do it myself. David sought self-restoration through human plots, human restoration. But in Psalm 51, these rich verses show a completely different path to restoration. They show us that the path to restoration lies only in brokenness. It shows us that we must cast ourselves on the mercy of God when we find ourselves in the midst of sin. This is the main point of this this passage. Psalm 51 tells us that God's mercy for the broken sinner compels us to repentance. 
God's mercy for the broken sinner compels us to repentance. And it wasn't until God directly confronted David by sending a prophet to call his bluff that he was truly convicted. And in this psalm, we can counter a man utterly broken. Gone are the lies, exposed. Gone are his royal privileges. We hear him cry out in desperation, Have mercy on me, O God! You can imagine a man, a man wringing his head, pulling out his hair, crying out in desperation. And even by using that word mercy, he, he's basically asking for something that he has no right to. Unmerited withholding of wrath that he deserved for his sin. David was changed from proud to trembling, from plotting to praying, from self-justifying to confessing. He was broken, and it's into this brokenness, it's into this level of sin that God's mercies reach. And it's into that brokenness that we bring this morning, or this afternoon, got to get used to that, that God's mercies extend to us today. Verse 17 read, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What a promise to David in light of his sin, and what a mercy to each one of us as we approach this passage. God's mercy for the broken sinner compels us to repentance. So we're going to see this mercy in three ways, three restorative mercies, and our first mercy is the mercy of cleansing. Immediately, when we read this text, we see David confessing and acknowledging his need for cleansing. He uses terms like, wash me, purge me with hyssop. And these words were words used by the Israelites to talk about becoming clean. You see, they could become unclean by coming in contact with a dead animal or some other means to, at a point where they weren't able to have communion with God or God's people. They needed to be cleaned by washing themselves before they could enter back into God's presence. And so the idea that David's communicating by using these words is that he needed God to do an act of cleansing to bring him into his presence. But the law provided methods for cleansing people for doing things like touching dead animals or some other unintentional things. But it didn't provide cleansing for the type of sins that David had just committed. David knows as he cries out, have mercy on me, that his only hope for cleansing will come from a miraculous act of God where his uncleanness is removed. So desperate for his relationship with God to be restored, David falls on his knees in utter brokenness and cries out to the Lord for cleansing. And we're going to see that he holds nothing back. Look with me from verses 1 through verse 9. You'll see that in verse 1 he says, blot out my transgressions. And then later in verse 9 he says, blot out my iniquities. In this section, we see a sinful man, but we see a broken man, an open man, a man ready to confess that he's been in the wrong. And though, uh, though David's certainly not the type of person in this story that we want to hold up for our kids and say, hey, be like this, the way he goes about confessing his sin 
is very, very instructive for the way that we go about confessing our sin when we fall. Notice in verse 3, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. What a stunning contrast. David before had done everything possible to not acknowledge his sin, and here he's acknowledging that it's before him and God all the day long. Notice it in verse 5. He acknowledges that this sin wasn't a freak accident. It wasn't that his passions came upon him and this wasn't going to happen again. He says, behold, in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is in his character. This is in his nature. He's acknowledging sin to that depth. Later in verse 6, we see David say that God delights in truth in the inward being. He knows that God didn't just care about the scandal the whole kingdom knew about at this point. God cared about the lustful look that he first took of Bathsheba on that rooftop. We need cleansing from secret sins as well as those that are in the open. And the temptation to live two lives, a a lie really, is so tempting. In our world of technology, our world of comfort, our world of individual privacy, It's far too easy to keep all our sin in the closet and only put on a smile when we come out into the light. But the contrite Christian confesses when he falls, regardless of where it happens, secret and public, because he knows the most important person's in both locations, God. In verse 4 he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. Maybe you read that verse and you thought, Say, what? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Against God only did you sin? Our sin is first and foremost against God because He's our creator and we are creature. All of us, this world and everything in it was made for God to honor and glorify His name. And when we sin against each other, we primarily sin against our creator. Because he owns it all. He created it all. We're speaking ill of him when we speak ill of each other. To illustrate this, I I have a kind of a goofy illustration for you. I hate cats, like any sane person in here. Suppose that one of you, well, you can keep your your identity anonymous, uh, you know, are one of those sadly misguided cat lovers. You spend your days cleaning out the litter box of felines that really don't care that you exist. Right? That really bothers me. So in a terror act against cats, I light your house on fire when you're not there, and I burn it down and I get the cat. So who did I sin against primarily? I mean, certainly I, I injured the cat. I, it was horrible. But I sin primarily against the owner God is the owner of everything. Every sin is first against Him. He loved Bathsheba. He created her. He loved Uriah. Oh, my creation. Dead. He actually has a unique love for His creation that none of us can fathom as creatures. So for David to sin against them, 
was for him to first sin against their creator. Now, we do sin against other people. The Bible has a lot to say about how we need to ask forgiveness from each other and reconcile with each other. But this passage makes a very important point that our sin's first against our maker. This means that no matter how we've reconciled with each other, if we haven't confessed our sins first to our God, our primary problem still exists. This means that our confession to each other, the, the effectiveness of that, hinges on our confession to God. So maybe recently with a spouse or someone close to you, you've been getting into a pattern of confessing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just started to sound real hollow. Maybe there's some confession to the primary offended party that needs to take place, like David. This means that even when we sin in such a way that doesn't hurt others, it's still sin because it's first and foremost against the Creator. Even, even things like self-harm are first and foremost against God and not against yourself because He owns us. Even things in secret that no one knows about are still sin because they're first and foremost against God. This means that even when we can't find forgiveness from others, we can find forgiveness and cleanliness from the most important person. Now, could David really hope that Uriah's family would forgive him? Maybe. We don't know. But David's confession reveals that he had confidence that he could be forgiven and cleaned by the primary offendee. Because sin's first against God, he's able to grant a cleansing unlike any other. He has the jurisdiction to grant you a cleansing that makes you clean no matter what anybody else says. If you've burned bridges today as you come and you feel all the collateral damage from your life, if you confess your sins to your maker, do you know what? He has the power and the authority to call you clean, to take you from the realm of the unclean and move you and transport you into the realm of the clean in His eyes. And His eyes, my friends, are the ones that matter. Amen. Now David's sins, they, they reaped. And our sin is hideous. I mean, we know what we've done. We know the lies that we've spun. We know the hypocrisy that we've allowed to creep into our lives, the things we've seen and the sinful fantasies that we've indulged. So how can God draw near to something so ugly like me? Well, recently I've been talking to my wife, Missy, a lot about this ship called the Lusitania. And if you don't know what that ship is, it's okay. I didn't know until a week ago. So um, Apparently it's one of the most famous sinkings ever. Uh, it happened during World War II. It was a, a ship um, that was sunk. And um, my, my wife was telling me about this, and she started describing this one chapter that, that talked about the bodies that washed up on the ocean floor, uh, or on the ocean um, shore, and it just really gripped me as an as as analogy for this. It says that the, the smell of the corpses were so pungent that most people wouldn't even go near them. It also says that those bodies that washed upon the shore were barely recognizable, sometimes just parts. But families searched through the corpses, braving the smell that caused many to vomit. 
searching for some identification of the bodies that few could recognize. Their love for their families propelled them through the foulest of smells, decay of death, and and they demanded from the doctors to know exactly how their family member had died so that they could honor them appropriately. That type of love blows me away, but it's just a dim reflection of the steadfast love of the Lord that He has for the unlovely, unclean, hideous sinner like me. Look with me at what David appeals to in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Was it according to David's military conquests? No. Was it according to David's slaying of Goliath? No. Was it according to all the Psalms that David had written? No. It wasn't his faithfulness. It was the steadfast love that the, uh, of the Lord that never ceases. It was according to God's graciousness, his steadfast love and covenant commitment to his people that David appealed. You see, God revealed himself to be this kind of God to Moses. He said that his name was the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This holy God had revealed himself to be not only the punisher, but the extender of mercy and grace in light of Israel's flagrant sin to Moses. And it's this that David appeals to. He appeals to the steadfast love that explodes through the wall of our pride and allows us to have true confession. God's mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And it's because of this great faithfulness that no matter how vile, no matter how unforgivable our sin may seem to this world, we can find cleansing. Hallelujah! We can find cleansing and repentance of sin. No matter what the world says about us, because of the immensity of God's mercy and love for us. Brothers, sisters, there's no garment too stained that He cannot make white as snow. There's no immorality so perverse that he cannot correct. There's no act of disobedience to God. There's no lust or sinful craving or carnal indulgence that you may have committed. There's no depths and the unclean mire that you can descend to that he cannot reach into with his steadfast love and pull you free. He will. Amen. So what do we do? We drop our cover-up story. We acknowledge that the stench of my sin is there. And guess what we find? Steadfast love, mercies in me, and cleansing. Let's acknowledge that our sin is against God foremost and is before us all the day long. And let's receive the restorative mercy of cleansing from our merciful God. God's mercy for the broken sinner His steadfast love for the broken sinner, His compassionate, gracious faithfulness to us, it must compel us to repentance. So we've seen the restorative mercy of cleansing. Now is our second mercy, renewal. So our second restorative mercy, renewal. God's mercies aren't complete with cleansing, 
He promises to David that he will renew his heart from within. In verses 10 through 13, we see David requesting for his inner experience of the Lord to be renewed. He pleads and petitions with God. He says, create in me a new heart, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within. We see him asking that the Lord preserve the Holy Spirit within him. So he recognizes that the issue is not merely that he unintentionally touched a dead animal. He didn't just become unclean through something like that. There was something wrong inside. Sin had grown thick, twisted roots into his heart, and he was in dire need of excavation. So what he had done had not only stained every inch of him, so he needed holistic cleansing. He needed his heart changed. Verse 10, when he says, create in me. That's a word that's only used in the Bible when it's talking about God's creative acts. Never used to talk about man creating things. By David choosing this word, he's acknowledging that this is beyond his power. He can't muster up the creative energy necessary to right what's wrong with inside of him. But by using that word, he's also acknowledging that God can. And with David, we have to fall on our knees and beg our God to give us a heart that desires to live for him, to renew our love for him, to want to grow, to want to live a life in communion with him. Can he make us new? How come David thinks he can This is the God Almighty. This is the God Most High who, remember, out of nothing, He created the stars and scattered them with their iridescent dance. Out of nothing, He created the waters. He formed their currents in majestic waves, and He knows their hidden depths. Out of nothing, He formed the mountains. He cut the valleys, and He created a creation wholly good. And He can, He can create in us a new heart doesn't matter how broke it feels. He can fix it. He's the great creator with powers beyond our imagination. But this is beyond our power to renew. It is insurmountable for us to create. Only he is able to take our seemingly dead spirits and renew them. Only he can take dust and breathe life into us to form us. He's able to take what seems too far gone and make it have life. So the Creator God can do this work. David expects Him to do this work. And so we will see Him in verse 11 say, Cast me not away from Your presence. He doesn't want to be taken from the one place that can actually bring Him to renewal. And this brings to mind a a beautiful, spotless courtroom with a royal throne and a regal uh, king sitting on the throne. And all of a sudden, the back doors are flown open, and this, this man comes in, dripping with mire, dripping with, with, with disgustingness all over him, with every step that he takes down the aisle, leaving a footprint of filth, the crowd scattering as he comes down, everybody withdrawing, the soldiers coming to usher him out. And the king says, no, come. This is the type of access that David's asking for. He says, don't take your presence from me. And what does verse 17 say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He looks, he sees, he loves. 
He does not despise. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So if you're broken today, if you're genuinely weeping, like David, over the way your sin has affected God, it will lead to renewal. It will produce fruit in your life. But again, we have to pause and analyze our hearts. This renewed spirit comes from the broken prayer, the clean heart from the desperate plea. So throughout verses 1 through 9, we saw this confession. But David does more than confess in this psalm. He also repents. Repentance goes beyond confession. It includes a change of action, turning from sin to change the way you live. Andy Reid was the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles from 1999 to 2012. And towards the end of his tenure, there was a downward spiral where he lost a ton of games. And he had these press conferences where he would repeat the same phrase over and over again. And only the way he said, he would say, I'm sorry, guys, it's my bad. i got to do better. With that kind of coughing voice that Andy Reid always had. And you know what? That confession, i got to do better, my bad, it was met with appreciation at first. Wow, this guy's not blame shifting on other people. It's great. But... As timeouts were blown time and time again, as coaches were misassigned again and again, that confession got hollow. And he was shown the door because he was great at confessing, but not at repenting. It's this humility that David has that leads to repentance. So David confesses his sins, but we also read that he desires to live differently. In verse 14, we, really, we read that he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. We see David doesn't just want to be let off the hook. He doesn't just want to get clean. He wants his life to be owned by God. He wants to be used as a testimony to show other people that are unrepentant how to repent and get clean. David moves beyond confession to repentance. And we see this, this theme of confession of sin, petition for renewal, living differently. That's repentance. Confess, pray, and live differently. So this is the type of brokenness that the Lord will not despise. Repentance never meets a deaf ear. Our God loves the broken sinner. So when you fall into sin, friends, we all do. What's your posture like? Is it broken humility? Or is it scrambling to save face? We've all been in David's predicament. I know I just sinned. What do I do? I just pretend like it didn't happen. It was just once. I cover up my tracks. In his sin against Bathsheba, David refused God's extended mercy multiple times. He looked at Bathsheba lustfully while God looked on in silent grief, eager to extend mercy to this selfish man. When he found out that she was married, he could have repented. Mercy was prepared even for his repentance after he had raped Bathsheba. But he called Uriah home. He could have told Uriah even then, 
and repented and found mercy pouring down from heaven. He wasn't too far gone. But rather than confessing and making plans to fight sin, he made plans to cover up his sin. And that's the opposite of repentance. It's running away from the mercy of God. David's confession and petition for cleansing and renewal have some striking applications for us, me, and you, as we battle our own sins. Repentance requires us to be utterly honest in confession to the Lord. So are there areas of sin in your life that you have been hiding and you're not actively confessing, really no one knows about? Ones that you're pretending don't exist, maybe. You're gratifying them when you absolutely have to and you can't fight anymore, and then quickly trying to cover them up. Are there areas where you're sinning that you need to get serious about taking practical steps to change? You know, sometimes when we hear practical steps to change, we would be like, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to put plans in place till my heart changes. Cry out to the Lord for your heart to change while we make plans to live differently, amen? I mean, God's in both, isn't he? He's reaching out to give us new hearts, and he's given us ideas of how to say no to temptation. You see, the Christian that is repenting is ready to give over everything to the Lord. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's just take it. Take it away from me, Lord. Continual repentance in the Christian life requires us to make practical decisions in an attempt to grow, even as we depend on the Lord for the heart that's willing to obey. God calls us to live holy lives, but he also knows our weakness. He knows our sinfulness. And he's given us a gift, repentance. We don't think of it as a gift a lot. Sometimes it's the thing we don't like talking about. But this is God seeing us in our sinfulness and acknowledging it and saying, here's how you move forward, repentance. Our aim as Christians isn't to be perfect. It isn't to be consistently um, perfect and preserving a perfect reputation in others' eyes. Our aim is to continually repent and fight sin, confess sin, and seek to live differently as we stumble. You see, we think of David as this great, awesome character of moral integrity. We think of him as the guy playing the harp, the guy shouting and dancing, the guy who's got his act together, who's the, the king of Israel, but he was broken. And it's the broken and the contrite spirit that God loves. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because he slayed a giant. It was because God had slain his heart. God's mercy had extended into his brokenness. Brothers and sisters, if you're trying to live that perfect reputation life, that's not God's plan for you. The plan for God is to extend mercy to the broken sinner. And if we're honest, we're all broken together, so it's okay. We're repenting, we're living together, and we're moving on, fighting sin together. Now, there are consequences to when we aren't repentant. The Scriptures are clear. Once saved, always saved. You can't, you can't lose your salvation. But friend, sin does do violence to our intimacy with the Lord. Sin unchecked, temporarily places distance between God and us. We miss out on the intimacy and the joy of knowing our God and knowing the beauty of mercy. This doesn't mean that every time you're dry, it's because of sin. 
Sometimes there's other factors that we don't know, that only God knows. But it does mean that habitual or even rampant sin has serious consequences in the Christian life. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but it does mean that you grieve your God. He weeps over the sin. And it really does make things more difficult for you in this life. David lost the child. The child that he had with Bathsheba, he lost. There were real consequences in his life. Though he, I'm confident he is with the Lord in heaven now. Had he repented, things would have been so much easier on him. He would have known the intimacy of God quicker. Perhaps like me, you sometimes allowed areas of sin to go unaddressed. Patterns of sin have developed. That's, that's happened to me. When I failed in those times, a massive burden results on my shoulders. And it's like every single step that I step away from repentance, the burden gets heavier. If that's you, don't allow that burden to continue. Your heavenly Father is reaching out to you. The fact that you feel the weight of your sin is His activity in your life opening your eyes to, to your sin. Maybe you were singing earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And you feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's God's mercy. You would not see it without Him. And it's your opportunity to have that burden, that wandering removed from you. And the intimacy, the relationship with the Lord restored. Today, He will renew our hearts. Today, he will bring us into sweet communion with himself. The mercy of God for the broken sinner compels us to repentance. So we've got cleansing. Hallelujah. We've got renewal. That's amazing. But God's mercies still explode from this, the pages of this chapter because we have joy. In, in verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. How audacious. David doesn't want, just want cleansing. He wants to be able to sing loud praises to the Lord. Joy of salvation. And he's not just asking for an excited time of singing or his favorite song to come on the radio or for him to feel all nice and feel better about himself. He's asking for the type of joy that only comes when you know your sins have been taken from you. The type of joy that only happens when that burden is lifted from your shoulders and it feels like you're about to lift off from the room. The work of the Spirit and giving the joy of salvation. This is the joy that accompanies that assurance. The deepest and most joyous happiness that there is on this earth. Through the process of repentance, we grow in adoration of God, appreciation for what He's done for us, and the joy in being saved by Him. Verse 13 says, as we said before, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David desires that the Lord would help him to tell others the ways of God that they might be restored. And he desires to sing loud shouts of praise. But just like he was incapable of cleansing and renewing himself, he was incapable of creating this song in his heart. You see, repentance is something God calls us to but only he can enable truly in our hearts. The passion and the song that David's describing in these verses 
is a response to the joy that God placed in his heart. We have a great choir director here at Risen Hope, Jen Tolan. She does an awesome job. But this is the greatest choir director. He is setting the rhythm and melody of this joy of our salvation. And no others can match the magnitude of this praise. He's not just a God that takes away our filth. That would be amazing. He's not just a God who renews our souls with miraculous creative power so that he, we might live for him. He's a God that grants to us the joy of our salvation, who opens our lips and inspires in us a loud shout of praise. This is the praises of the redeemed, not the praises of the perfected, but the praises of those who know their, their sins have been removed from them, and even in their brokenness, God has lifted their voices from the ashes up to their Savior. This is a new heart. This is a clean heart. And this heart demands a new song for the salvation that it has received. You see, we can't ultimately repent until God takes our affection for sin and replaces it with an affection for something higher, something greater, something irresistible when we see Him. This is the mercy of God. He doesn't want to just show us depravity of sin or how counterfeit the currency of pleasure is. He wants to show us himself, to open our eyes to his beautiful mercy and stir our affections, to sing of his glory from the inside out. Repentance is complete when we choose to live for God. And this can only happen when God opens our lips to praise. For David, his hope that God would open his lips was located in God's promise to forgive transgressions and iniquities and sin. But how could God be justified in his words and blameless in judgment and pardon him for his atrocities? He didn't know. He had no idea. But he knew that God had revealed himself as that merciful God. And that if he cast himself upon the Lord, he would somehow extend mercy. But now, mercy has an explanation. Now we know how God can withhold His just wrath from horrible sinners like you and me. Now we see how God can take sins that are scarlet and make them white as snow. Now we see how God can draw near to us in brokenness and avert His eyes from us even as He changes us and wipes our filth like a mother does her child. Now steadfast love and kindness have a face, the face of of Jesus Christ, a face that will not be stopped by the stench of our filth, a Savior that searches, He combs through the rottenness, the stench of our sin to find us, to clean us, to renew us, and to show us how much more worthy He is of our affections. Guys, how could God hide His face from David? David says, hide your face from me. It was because He was looking someone else. Jesus' sinlessness in our place. He hid his face from us and he looked upon his son. And Jesus lived that life of purity. Jesus lived with a resolute spirit on doing the will of God. Yet he gave up his life as he was crucified on a hill called Calvary so that he might take our filth upon himself. How can God approach us despite our rotten sin? 
He looks at Jesus' purity instead of it. Jesus became unclean that we might become clean. He became filth that we might become his radiant bride. He was separated from God, endured damnation for the sins that we've committed so that we could draw near to him in communion. And all of this he offers to us. He offers his pure life as our cleansing. He takes our brokenness and makes us whole. No, no buts to this type of cleansing. You've trusted in Jesus. There's no, but you don't know who I, you're clean. But you don't know what I, you're clean. But you don't know who I, you are absolutely spotless, radiantly clean. And the only reason that God would allow distance, if you're feeling that and you've trusted in Jesus, between him and yourself is to draw you to him deeper, to draw you to him truly, and to help you live for him more. But if you've never realized that you need cleansing, that you need Jesus' cleansing, and that you really can't live for him or praise him without his mercy descending into your brokenness. You've never really repented of your sins and gone beyond confessing to changing the way that you live. If you've been living in denial, you can call out to him right now. He can take you from outside of the camp and put you inside of the camp where you were before unclean and destined for hell, you can be destined for intimacy with God. It's an abandonment of our own ability to get clean that God rewards with mercy. It's a hope that's found in Christ alone that claims this song, that claims this mercy. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The broken in the contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And in light of Jesus, the broken heart runs only in one direction. To him. We run to him. Come to him with your anger. And he will renew your spirit. Come to him with your sins. And he will make you clean. Repent of your sins and find the deluge of mercy that pours forth from the ocean of Jesus' steadfast love. But I have to warn you. Church Father Augustine once said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. Do, do not delay. Act on this mercy. Repent from your sins, and he will make you clean. If you trusted in Jesus and repented of your sins in the past, it still applies to you as well. See, repentance isn't just a one and done thing. We have to keep repenting, as we've seen David do in this passage. But he's ordained that every time that we cry, he will hear our voice. Every time we repent, he will increase the volume of our singing. He will turn our praise up notch 
by notch as we repent. And we will see just how bad our sin truly is. But more than that, grace and mercy will become more amazing. So we'll sing the same songs we always sing. But for some reason, now all of a sudden, we get it. It's glorious. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Suddenly our ears are open. Our eyes are open. Our mouths are open to declare His praise because God never turns a deaf ear to our repentance and He always rewards it with joy. So where do we go when we find ourselves caught in sin? We go to Jesus. We come to Him just like we did maybe long ago, maybe yesterday. We come to Him with our sexual addictions, and He makes us clean. He restores us. He helps us to say no to temptation. We come to Him with selfishness, and He gives us affections for Him. We come to Him in brokenness, and He lifts us to a song we thought we'd never be able to sing again. Jesus grants us restoration through cleansing, renewing, Restoring our joy, my friends, this has to propel us, must compel us to repentance. This is God's promise to us all today. He he will not despise us in our sin when we draw near in brokenness and trust in Jesus Christ for mercy. We're going to do that right now. We're going to draw near to him through a time of communion. Tim's going to lead us through.